there are many people that are still very skeptical, as happens in science when a great idea enters it. When I read Edelman, I thought, aha, this man has it right. It's interesting to think about what Edelman's doing is what Edelman is thinking. What Edelman is thinking is that the brain is a Darwin machine. It's not just an issue of philosophy and ideology. It is a very hard scientific issue in these days. Here is a brain theory that fits the behavioral observations that we've been collecting for all these years. What Edelman accomplished is to present a picture on the brain and on the mind that shows you how these two can relate to each other. I get a very excited feeling that Edelman at least has given us the first global theory, the first sort of model to work on. And um, I think there's, there's never been anything like this before. Charles Darwin was sitting in this room thinking about a new theory, evolution by natural selection. That idea would become the foundation of modern biology. But Darwin's theory was incomplete. Although it explained the origin of all living things, it could not yet account for perhaps the most important biological phenomenon, the human mind. We really need a theory just for the same reasons that Darwin needed a theory to explain the origin of species, to explain the origin of the diversity of perceptions, sensations, and thoughts. You certainly need a theory. In his search for a new theory, Gerald Edelman has turned away from a machine model of the mind back to the fundamental principles of the science of living things. The immune system adapts the body to its environment minute by minute, and it works by selection. The brain also adapts to the world, but second by second. Edelman's work on the immune system suggested an extraordinary and controversial leap of ideas, to start thinking about the brain in terms of selection. Well, in a certain way, you can think of this idea of selection in terms of your own work in the film. When one looks at a film, it looks very tidy, and very often you get the illusion that it's really a replica of life, that things are happening just as they really happen. But if you look at the process itself, there's an awful lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. Well, what does that mean? It, in some sense, you might even say that all art is selection or editing. And what an artist does, or I suppose a film director, is take an awful lot of circumstances, even under a rather vague idea, and then as the idea begins to build, put the pieces together and construct them, leaving a lot of debris on the cutting room floor, selecting against and selecting for. When we look out onto the natural world, we see beauty and order. For more than a century, we have thought of living things in terms of natural selection, the one force in nature that can produce complex forms. How fitting then to invoke the same principle 
to explain the complexity of the human brain and its products. Edelman has shown that Darwin's idea has the power to explain not only the origin of nature, but the origin of mind. Let me start with Descartes and say how he posed the problem, because even though one doesn't agree with him, it sets the context actually very beautifully. It sets what the problem is. Alfred North Whitehead, in his book, Science in the Modern World, made an interesting statement. He said, uh, at the very beginnings of Western science in the 17th century, two figures removed the mind from nature. The first was Galileo, and the second was Descartes. And so the problem is, well, how can you put the mind back into nature, all right? Because if you can't put it back into nature, science can't deal with it. So what do you do? Well, another figure came, and I think he's largely responsible, even though he's beyond a philosopher, he was a psychologist as well, and that's William James. He said, no, you can actually study consciousness, you can actually do psychological studies and behavioral studies. Now, this fell into oblivion uh, with the early development of behaviorism, not in neuroscience, but in psychology, where you said, none of that mental stuff counts. Well, thanks to the cognitive psychology movement in the last three decades, that's been replaced. But unfortunately, I think a lot of cognitive psychology um, treats the brain and mind as part of, as a machine model, as, as a computer, a Turing machine. So the question I've been interested in is, uh, can we go beyond that? And can we relate the brain theory I talked about to the issue of consciousness? We live in a in a view of science that's highly mechanized. We've been talking about essentially the machine model of the mind, the computer, instructionism. Uh, I'm against that, as you know. I think the facts don't stand up for that. The facts stand up for individuality, for the fact that you don't really know what's going to happen, and that you can't really prescribe how an individual, even with strong values, is going to behave in every single circumstance. I won't talk about freedom, but I will talk about the value of individuality. This theory implies that the individual variations, both of structure and experience in each individual, can't be valued highly enough because you don't know what they're going to lead to until the selection's been made. Now consider a machine. All machines are alike except those that are noisy. Throw away the noisy ones. Under a machine view of the world, all that we consider is humane, all that we consider is fundamental about the notion of the individual, really doesn't have a place. And if you want me to give you a feeling of a story that I think exemplifies the essence of learning, gift, value, and accidental circumstance, it's about Beethoven's landlady, who says, Beethoven, get out of my house. Your cat drinks my milk. You throw the laundry in the stairwell, and you pound on the piano all night. I can't sleep. And he says, Mrs. Schmidt, don't do this to me. You're my inspiration. And she says, ha, 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 ha. And that, I think, is a perfect example of someone grabbing a circumstance that seems irrelevant and turning it into a great symphony by selection. Welcome to Naturalizing Consciousness, everybody. We're really honored that you're all here. And uh, we're uh, really excited to be together and to share some really cool things with you that everyone's been thinking about for quite some time. We're here to have as, as a tribute to Gerald Edelman 
and what better essence of individuality and brilliance and a symphony of life than to introduce you to my dear friend and um, extraordinary colleague, um, neuroscientist, and the son of Jerry Edelman, um, David Edelman. Thank you, Natalie. And, and um, you know, I, 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 of course I'm biased, but if, if any life in this world kind of exemplifies the story that, uh, that my father just told about Beethoven's landlady <laughs> and uh, about circumstance and valuing circumstance because or evaluating, evaluating a particular situation because you can't anticipate where it will lead, it's kind of my father's professional art. It's the way he lived his life. It's the fields that he ended up uh, endeavoring to explore. And those were at least three fields, in fact, more, actually, really. But he had no idea, I think, at the very beginning of this, as a young MD uh, working in uh, the wards of the American Hospital in Paris at night, as, as both an army captain and an MD, um, delivering servicemen's babies and all this, he had no clue that his life would take precisely this course. He didn't know he was interested in this nascent science of immunology. I'm not even sure people in 1956 and 57 were referring to it as a science of immunology yet. But it was one of the great mysteries, right? So how does the immune response work? How does uh, an animal like a rabbit, or us, a human being, deal with, say, a compound that a chemist can make in a laboratory that's never seen the light of day on the face of the earth, no animal has ever experienced it, no animal's immune system has ever experienced it, and yet, quite often, the rabbit or the human or whoever you happen to inject with this compound is able to mount a largely successful immune response. That was really mysterious at the time. And that's really got his juices going. And so he endeavored to sort of solve this problem, and I guess he eventually did. And in, in, in sort of working his way toward a solution, he realized really that the existing model, which was what we might call an instructionist model, that is the idea that when an antibody encounters a foreign invader, the antibody comes up, it reconforms itself, it reshapes the protein structure, you know, to conform to the shape of the antigen, and in so doing, destroys the antigen, you know, kills off the antigen. And that was a prevailing theory at the time. In the 1950s, such luminaries as Linus Pauling really believed that in their heart of hearts. My father comes along and through uh, a, a fair amount of, of work uh, by he and his colleagues over the better part of uh, 10 years at Rockefeller University, first Rockefeller Institute, um, he not only deciphered the structure of the entire human antibody molecule, he also came to the conclusion that, you know, wow, this idea of instruction, it's kind of off, it can't possibly work. What if it's the case that you have a repertoire of antibodies, they're all different. No two are necessarily exactly alike. I, I should say no two species of antibody are exactly alike because there are replicas, there are clones of a particular antibody, but you have millions, tens of millions of different varieties. And you have that repertoire and you have much of that repertoire from early on, even though you're generating more and more over the course of your, your young life, you come to the world with a lot of that already in place. What if it's the case that something comes in say it pulses through your, your lymph nodes and encounters a lot of different antibody populations and they're all different. And somehow, just perchance, it hits the right one and the lymph system is a really good place for that to happen. Um, 
And the fit is okay, it's good enough. Good enough to kill that antigen, that foreign invader, but also good enough to kill an antigen or a foreign invader that's somewhat different, not completely different, but somewhat different. So instantly, not only do you have that pre-existing repertoire, you also have individual antibodies that can deal with some degree of variety themselves. That's a huge functional repertoire. And that sounds a lot like an idea that was, that was finally agreed upon or more or less accepted by consensus, at least in England, in, you know, in the, by, by the 1860s, 1859 actually, natural selection. Because you're dealing with a population. So my father thought about that, and then somehow he worked his way through. He became a developmental biologist studying the mystery of embryogenesis. And then he became eventually a neuroscientist. And, and of course, other people had speculated about these kinds of things, and he was influenced by them. But he asked himself, you know, what if it's the case that the brain is sort of like the immune system or like a population of organisms in the wild? What if there's a repertoire, and in this case it would be a repertoire of groups of neurons connected by what we call synapses, wired together, and the world comes in and pinches on it, and the world actually selects from a pre-existing repertoire of possible combinations. And so, to sort of sum that up, I don't want to talk forever, uh, to sum that, that idea up, you, you can use sort of two words, and this was the title of a famous book by a, a, a French biologist named Jacques Monod. The book was called Chance and Necessity. And I'm going to tell you a little, sort of a funny parable that captures the essence of that. It's sort of a, maybe a riff on the Beethoven story. But picture this. There's a guy on the F train headed into Brooklyn late at night. It's a sweltering night. It's, it's the peak of the summer. It's mid-July in New York and 95 degrees, 95% humid, humid, humidity, 95 degrees temperature. He's sweating like a you-know-what. And he's in a rush to get home because he's stressed by the, the thought that his wife may be cheating on him. So he rushes home to their walk up. He, he runs up the stairs. He's panicked and angry at the same time. He's looking around the apartment, seeing if he can find any trace of anything that would indicate you know, his wife has stepped out on him. Can't find anything. Goes out on the balcony. He looks down. He sees this guy like loosening his tie on the fire escape and they're brushing the sweat off his, his brow. He gets really angry. So he picks up the nearest objects, which just happened. This is a very economy flat. It's a refrigerator next to his body. He picks up the refrigerator, drops the, the, the refrigerator on the guy's head, and then immediately dies of a heart attack. Okay. And so now imagine that, that the scene switches to heaven. Now we're in heaven, and St. Peter is looking down on looking down on these three men. And he says, All right, gentlemen, you know, you've done you've you've pursued a life of good works. I think it's a pretty foregone conclusion you're entering the pearly gates. So, but I need to ask you first, this is kind of a thing I do, I want to ask you, how did you end up here? So the first guy says, I, I, was, I suspected that my, my wife was having an affair and I was so angry one night, I, I looked down on the balcony, I saw this guy, you know, wiping the sweat off his brow, I thought, ah, oh, that's the bastard. I grabbed the nearest up to the refrigerator, I dropped it on his head and I died of a heart attack. And, you know, the guy, uh, the, the St. Peter says, oh, that's okay, I understand, you're in. Second guy. <laughs> well, you know, I, it was a hot night. I had just come home from work. It was, you know, I, I hadn't seen my girlfriend in a while. I was lonely, but I stepped out. I was kind of distracted. And all of a sudden, this refrigerator drops in my <laughs> and, and then St. Peter said, all right, well, that kind of makes sense. The third guy, he said, turns to the third guy, he says, 
what's the story with you? You know, why, how did you end up here? Oh, I don't know, St. Peter. I was minding, I was just sitting in a refrigerator minding my own. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, that, that story, which is my, favorite, my father's favorite story, so I, I tripped it off my dad. Sorry, dad. Um, but that, that story captures the essence of what he, we just talked about. And um, I think, you know, that hits the nail on the head. But that, that, so that both describes, in a way, my dad's career, because it had this sort of twists and turns, and only after it was more or less not over, but late in the day in his career, could you sort of see there was this tendril of commonality running through all of the disciplines he chose to study. And the commonality was something that you, know, you can sum up by the term selection. This notion of selectionism, this idea that these, these vastly vast and complex biological systems, um, you can more or less think of them as repertoire or populations of animals or whatever have you, and something in the environment or the little milieu in which these things exist is selecting from the repertoire and shaping, in fact, shaping, in fact, that entity or that group, whether it's, an, it's, it's antibody populations, population of organisms, or perhaps um, the brain. So welcome David again. Thank you. start in with knowing that we're here uh, to, to have a personal conversation on subjectivity. Um, we're going to familiarize ourselves with subjectivity since we all have our own individual moment by moment as we just learned. Um, and I'd like to pose a question to y'all. So you've got two minutes, minor, 20 seconds give or take. And I know that's going to be challenge. So I'm going to be I'm going to be ca uh, counting. I have a leather strap that has no timer, so you guys are off pressure. Wait, but I, 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 I thought you were going to stop, but I have a leather strap. Should I take that as a threat or a promise? Oh, we're going there. Okay. So I have a leather strap, and I know how to use it. And uh, and if you could take two minutes or so, um, what do you mean? What do we mean when we say subjectivity or subjective experience? What, what, what do you mean, and how would you demonstrate it? And I'd like to start with Jay, please. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's a, a word that has uh, different meanings for different people in that sense. It's uh, self-referentially um, subjective. But I think it's this uh, idea of, of being aware of, of being me in terms of the, the self-awareness um, aspect, in, in terms of looking at the world um, from my perspective as an individual person. Could you elaborate a little bit? Um, you have one more minute. Okay, yes. <laughs> well, I, I mean, for my world is developmental in terms of, and so one way I'd look at this is when would that occur in terms of as a baby in the womb, thinking like, you know, I'm little Jay, you know, like the world around me, like the amniotic fluid and stuff like that. Or if not in the womb, at what point in life do we first have the sensation of being us, you know, in terms of knowing that we're uh, an individual person. And, and where that line is crossed, uh, that has, you know, including octopus or other animals, you know, in terms of at, at what point in terms of our brain development are the brains capable of this um, sensation of being self-aware. Um, and so, um, like you mentioned, neuroarchitecture and, you know, connectivity, is a big part of this as well in terms of as the brain matures, it doesn't mature by getting larger and larger, it matures by becoming more interconnected. And I think that the, the key to consciousness, so to speak, 
will be in understanding how these connections. And if the different brain parts are like letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, C, at some point they become connected into words. And then those words into sentences. And so a sentence like, uh, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe. Is that a story? Or uh, it depends on how we define a story. She lived in my shoe. She yes, that. but at, at some level, whether, however arbitrary it is, we'll say there's a, a sufficient number of sentences and stuff that that's a story. And I think that's what consciousness is like. There, there'll be a certain degree of interconnectedness in the brain that will cross the threshold where we could say, now those letters have become words, have become sentences, have become a story, and that's when consciousness emerges. When we can have sufficient memory, connectivity, uh, references to the world around us and the world within us, then this notion of what we call subjectivity or consciousness, um, that is the uh, necessary neural components of it is not the individual structures, but how they're connected. Connected. Okay, great. All right. And, yes. and to sort of just, I'm sorry, just to briefly add. Is this to part that. of your two minutes? I'm counting. <laughs> so, so just to sort of add to what Jay said, um, an important aspect of this is what you might call the privileged nature of subjective experience. That is to say, you are you, and I have no direct access to the units of you. This is, you are absolutely unique, and there's no way that I could possibly experience the world the way you experience the world, however well or however much you try to communicate that to me. You know, the thing that will militate against my ever understanding exactly your unis, your experience as you, is the fact that you have a unique experience. You, you literally experience the world, and you have a unique history. The history is unique to you, and I don't share it. You know, I may share aspects in some way, shape, or form, but think about that, really. There's no way, based on my perception, the way I'm built, even I'm a human like Jay is, but my eyes are a little different. I see the world somewhat differently. There's no way that I could possibly have an identical experience. So the Jayness of Jay is unique to Jay. It's private, it's privileged, and that, I think, is really important. And that's something, in fact, that my father emphasized. The other aspect, I know I'm getting... Close to two. It's a, sci um, it's a scientist's version of two minutes. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Relative. <laughs> it's, it's two minutes on Jupiter. Okay. So, so the point about it is that uh, it, you know, this was an important aspect of my dad's feeling about the nature of consciousness, but also I should add the interactive nature of the conscious experience. That is to say, it's the connections, but it's also the selection by the world and by your own individual history of those connections that strengthen versus the ones that aren't selected for and simply weaken, or in the case during development, maybe even retract and the connections to die off, or even some cells die. So. Excellent. Thank you very much. Jeff, I would love to hear from you. Oof. It's hard to follow that up. Actually, um, I've had a subjective experience now hearing David talk, and actually bring up one of my favorite jokes. Uh, um, but in, and there was a whole catalog of jokes that, that your father had. And it brings back just all these memories, including the Beethoven joke he always told. Um, and I think that's a big part of the experience. Uh, memories, how you build memories, how they shape what you are, your experience. Uh, how you can use those memories to kind of do mental time travel, to work through those memories, to actually plan for the future, I think is a very important part of it. How like you develop values through your lifetime that actually shape those memories. And given a certain time point in your life, those values actually shape how you work through your memories, things like that. And then there's, there's also, I, I really don't deal with consciousness, I will, at least besides my own, but, um, 
But uh, th there's some other ideas that, like theory of mind, when, when, uh, when David was talking about the J-ness of J, and there's the Davidness of David. But you know, I, I, I know I'm conscious, and I have this theory that David and Jay are conscious, and I can put myself into their shoes and, and be empathetic. Um, and I think that's empathy is a very important part of it, especially of social creatures like, like us as human beings. And that, that's another part of leading to, I guess, what you guys would call the that's subjective lovely. experience. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just real quick. Yes, Jay. And so oh. even wondering if, if that is part of the adaptive nature of consciousness, just as you said, like I can be able to put ourselves in other shoes. That, that can um, enhance our chance of survival because we can anticipate threats and alliances and such. Yeah. It could be you know, something actually useful to be conscious. Well, yeah, and that goes back to, I mean, the whole theory neurodarwinism was Darwinism and selection and survival of the fittest. And if you're in social groups, to be able to figure out what the other people in your society and your group are doing and what that means and maybe how to get ahead or, or how to work with them, that's very important. So you see not just humans but other animals that, that are... are group related that, that have uh, empathy, sympathy, and, and maybe theory of mind. I mean, that's still an open question. Lovely. I'm going to ask Mark Mitten for you to fill two minutes, please. All, All right. right. I'll try to fill the yeah. two minutes. Um, see, for, from a magician standpoint, of course, this, <laughs> right, it kind of doesn't make sense, this stuff, right? Because we, you know, what I talked to Dr. Edelman about was, you know, we tried a bunch of, you know, like I did tricks for you, some, you know, for some of you before this started, and I try some stuff, and it works or it doesn't, right? So you're kind of in this selective environment. When cognitive psychologists talk about magic, they often talk about, like, there's only one possible outcome, whereas any working magician knows tricks don't work sometimes, right? Sometimes, they, And sometimes a great trick under one set of conditions isn't as terrible in another sense. So, you know, and like when I first met cognitive psychologists, and they were talking about theory of mind or how we envision the mind of someone else and Jayness and Davidness and Jeffness and Brynnianess, um, it gets all really complicated. But when I, I access the same thing by asking parents, you know, I, I'm not a parent, but you know, when I ask parents, because they were telling me that, you know, the, the cognitive psychologists were telling me that that didn't really happen until three and a half, the age of three and a half. And I'd ask parents, when did your kid first work you? Right? <laughs> and they all, it was like, it's like, it's almost, you know, like nobody can nail it, but it's like a lot earlier than, than three and a half. It turns out that that was a measuring limit. They were trapped in this verbal world of asking questions. So you know that kids at three and a half have a verbal limitation between three and a half and four, but it has nothing to do with their, you know, the way we work each other, right? So, so and, and tricks and jokes and ahas, you know, whether we listen to music and we go, wow, or we hear a joke and we laugh or not, um, or, or I do a trick and you react or not, you know, we have a lot of information. So the subjective and objective kind of in that space kind of go away because either a connection is being made, we're aligning and coupling as people in foveated eye contact research or the way we look at each other and either zoom in and connect or not. We all know this as human beings, right? So even like in these discussions right now, we're connecting or we're not. So, uh, and you score or you don't. And, and, you know, we all know this from interacting. So I think in that, this is the kind of thing that I talked about with Dr. Edelman, which was highly selective, obviously, because we try a bunch of stuff, it works or it doesn't. That's a lot like Darwin's idea, uh, you know, that, that nature tries some stuff, it works or it doesn't. And indeed, some people talk about nature like there isn't sloppiness. Like things all work out. The way he was talking about those films and a lot of stuff ending up on the cutting room floor, we've all heard those people. 
It's like the people, like I always, like I joke, like, because I work at a lot of fancy events, right? So there's a kind of social life. If I, you know, if a person talks about a party, like it's going to go well, then I know they haven't thrown many parties. <laughs> it just means that they don't know reality. It has nothing to do with, they have a good theory of parties, you know? <laughs> so. That's our next seminar, so you have to take your calendar and come back. Thank you very much. So can I ask you a question? So sure. Part of selectionism might be uh, the way you actually approach magic, right? Because it's making people select and attend to something and divert their attention. Well, you something. just said magic words. Because when psychologists talk about it, yeah. they always talk about attention control as if confusion isn't part of it. Yeah. And when I go back to the family model, when kids are working you and you're talking to them and they, you know that they know that you know that you ended up, but then they can act confused and mess it all up. And they know it. But somehow psychologists didn't get the memo that people also fool people with confusion. Because they're so focused on attention and these certain predictive models that Jerry couldn't understand, right? So yeah, and, and, and then we can also go into causal structures. You know, sometimes things happen for multiple reasons, you know? So if somebody's talking about causality in a simplistic way, I never drive your dad nuts, right? And, and then also, um, things like uh, magical feelings, right? So we go into the social space, because really, no big secret, I'm talking about mind, body, and spirit. Just don't tell scientists that, because they freak out, right? <laughs> so, um, so in, you know, because we have, we have the cognitive mind, and you can tell you're in uh, the world of ideas because the information is simple, the causal is A, B, A causes B. When you, you go into the physical world and the social world, if you're not talking about complexity, you're not in the world, right? So. Next question to Bernie, what is neural Darwinism, or neuronal group selection all about? You ask the simple ones. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The simple ones for you. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so my version of this, and David will have his own, and Jeff will have his own, and so on. My understanding of neural Darwinism is that it's a specific instance uh, of selectionism, and selectionism is a pervasive pattern of living nature. Uh, so, and, and it occurs, selectionism occurs not just over evolutionary eons, but also at much smaller scales and in terms of multiple systems in the body, the brain, the soci uh, <coughs> social group, uh, and uh, the demands of hunting and surviving and, and foraging and all those kinds of things, and all those things you can fail at, uh, in, including failing to, uh, uh, for your immune system, to fail to respond to, to an invader. Uh, and that's a very painful failure. And, and so failure is very much part of Darwinism. Um, and and neural Darwinism is a very fascinating proposal uh, by Gerald. Uh, and I guess we're calling him Gerald. Uh, sometimes we call him GME because I never felt comfortable uh, calling him uh, Jerry. Uh, um, that was a sort of selection that you had too. <laughs> and uh, so, so this this actually appeared in 1978, quite early on, uh, in a very interesting way. Uh, and if I understand Gerald's development, at least to some extent, uh, it is this insight that he wasn't supposed to have, uh, that, that the response of the immune system 
to unknown and unanticipated invaders is a kind of creative response. Uh, it is not a, a simple repertoire, it is an exploding repertoire uh, as necessary, right? Because once the immune system swamps the invader and, and it goes out through the lymph nodes or whatever, and perhaps you'll have some immunity for the next version of that particular invader. And that was the insight that got him the Nobel Prize because he identified the, the proteins involved and particularly the, the matching, let's call them defensive proteins for the body uh, and invading proteins for the body. And that matching process is not a lock and key thing, which is a very common metaphor and it's not entirely wrong, but it is, it's an adapting repertoire. And that was, I think, the stunning insight that got him into all kinds of trouble, uh, but fortunately also got him the Nobel Prize. So, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt Bernie, no. but there's, there's sort of a seminal, there's literally a moment, and I, I, I know the moment because I actually witnessed the moment in 1977 when this was a sort of a germinal idea. It was written, I think, on a, on a, on a napkin, a cocktail napkin in the airport in Milan or something, as far as I understood it. But, it really terminated in, a, in Boulder, Colorado at the annual meeting of the Neurosciences Research Program, which used to be sort of this big event that brought together all kinds of different scientists. And in, the, in that time, from 1966 to 1977, but particularly in 1966, the word neuroscience, the term neuroscience wasn't in common parlance. People really weren't talking about it that way. So through, I guess, the organizational genius of a guy named Frank Schmidt and another guy named Fred Worden, they started convening these regular meetings in Boulder, Colorado, and the idea was, let's bring people from totally diverse fields, biology, even some chemists here and there, but let's bring these diverse fields together, and let's talk about the brain. Let's try to figure out, let's try to make progress. And so at this particular meeting in 1977, my dad started talking to a guy named Vernon Mountcastle, who's no longer with us. Mm. Vernon was really famous for sort of pushing the organization of the cerebral cortex, which, which figures, as Bernie can attest, yeah. into conscious processing in the human brain and the mammalian brain. And mm -hmm. Vernon and, and my father started talking, and they had very fruitful conversations. My dad sort of started to build upon this through that conversation and, many, and a variety of others, and then eventually published in 1978, but the backstory to that publication mm -hmm. was after the meeting was over, probably within a month or two, probably even earlier, my father got a phone call from Frank Schmidt, the co-organizer of the NRP, and, and the chair of the NRP, and, and, and Frank said, so Jerry, when are you writing the book? And my father said, what book? What are you talking about? Oh, the book that you're going to co-author as a series of, as a couple of monographs with, uh, with uh, Vernon Mountcastle. Oh, well, that's news to me. <laughs> But in any case, I guess the identical call or a similar call was made to uh, Vernon Mancastle. So the very first book called The Mindful Brain was published, but really through sort of the pushing, amongst other things, by this guy, Frank Schmidt. And Frank, in a certain sense, was very insightful about this. He saw, he knew a good idea when he saw it. And I've more or less read that book, or at least I tried to tackle that book. And the Mountcastle chapter is very fundamental. I think it's read very, very widely. Um, and the Edelman chapter is very, 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 very fundamental. And for a while, I don't think it was read 
nearly as widely as one might expect. Uh, and that was because this weird idea, uh, which, you know, it seemed to be, uh, uh, I think, a, a kind of a metaphorical uh, ac uh, application of Darwinian theory. Uh, and Darwinian theory seems like a very simple rule of thumb that's just being repeated over and over and over again. And is that, in a sense, but the result of it is our species that are not really Aristotelian classes of animals. Uh, species are very poorly defined, uh, and the reason is that there's so much variation. Uh, so, if you've been tracking the, the human evolution story, uh, and, and the finding, for example, that, uh, uh, that uh, at Neanderthals uh, apparently uh, were impregnated or impregnated uh, hominins of our kind. Um, what's happening is that the edges are beginning to fray. Uh, and we're not no longer sure, and <coughs> David is a pro on this, uh, where the species starts and ends. And this is not an unusual thing. This is the norm. And, and so what we don't, we don't really have clean categories of the standard mathematician type, right, where you define the number series or something like that. And you start with that definition, very, very simple, and it has fantastic implications when you study it carefully. It is not an Aristotelian view in that sense. It is a dynamic view, it's an ever-changing view of the species keep changing, uh, and it's never quite clear uh, uh, where you are. Uh, it's not a precise problem. It's kind of a distribution uh, of differences. Just to follow up on what Bernie said, it's sort of a metaphor, but it's kind of more than a metaphor because what we're talking about are some very fundamental principles um, that are in play. And some very famous evolutionary biologists had argu literal arguments with my father. They're perfect. Had arguments with my father about this invocation of Darwinism vis-a-vis -vis the brain. And they said, Jerry, this is ridiculous. It's not Darwinism because, you know, when you have Darwinism, when you're talking about Darwinian evolution, you're talking about uh, a species of very sort of variant animals, all kinds of different shapes and sizes. But we recognize it as a sort of a species, but each individual is an individual. They're different. Something happens in the world that changes. It's a very diverse species. There's different varieties. Some of them survive that change because they happen to have a certain body type or they're less sensitive to temperature changes, but many others die. And as a result, the species get shaped over time. And, but, but a prominent feature of that whole process is what's called differential reproduction. The notion that you're amplifying a signal. The signal in this case is an individual who's passing along his, or he or she are passing along his or her genes and essentially not a replica, but descendants are left, and the descendants have a similarity to the parents. They have many of those features that allow for the survival. They persist. And they would say to my father, Jerry, there's no such thing as differential reproduction in the brain. And my father would answer and say, you don't understand. Just think of it as differential amplification of a signal. So in this case, replace reproduction with the notion that a particular 
uh, a particular fit between, a, say, a group of neurons that are firing away, they're in communication with one another, and they look a certain way, they have a certain configuration, and they're recognizable as a firing group. They fire together when, when an object is seen or heard or smelled, etc. Okay? And just imagine, when that gets reinforced, just imagine, in a sense, the signal getting spread, getting stronger, and in fact, maybe even spreading. And there being sort of a wider, a wider sort of amplification of the signal. So my father would say, look, it's sort of, it's very, very similar. It's slightly more than a metaphor because we are talking about essentially signal amplification. The difference is it's through reproduction if you're talking about organisms. And it's through this real amplification of some fit between an internal neuronal state in the world. And that's getting strengthened and it's even growing and persisting across the brain. Uh, okay, so let's go on to this. So just, just to start with this slide, that's a famous Rousseau, Rousseau painting, of course, and one of the things that my father invade against, and, and you heard it in, in the little video, is the notion of a, a computational, or not computational, but a machine view of nervous systems, of complex nervous systems. This notion that there's a one-to-one -one fit between the world and what's inside. And moreover, and this is not necessarily a popular view anymore today, thankfully, but the notion that there's some sort of a static representation sitting resonant in your brain, waiting to be called up again in, in recall. You know, but it's static. It's just sort of sitting there, right? But that's not quite what it is. It's, it's dynamic because the groups that represent the world that come up with us this dynamic, they're always changing. Some of the neurons literally die. Some of the connections get weakened on the, on the edges. By and large, you can recognize it if you look at the neurons firing. You say, oh, that group is kind of like the previous instantiation. It is essentially the same group, even though the configuration is changing slightly over time. Okay? That view of the nervous system. Can I uh, interrupt for one sec? So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what, what he's talking also about, the computer, was, was a pushback against AI at the time. Exactly. Because because the thought that intelligence was computation, we went back right. to Turing, and, right. and what he was trying to show was was that it actually intelligence is much different. It's noisy, it's complex, it's noisy, and it's it's um, like you said, not static. It's plastic. It's dynamic. It's con plastic. constantly changing due to experience. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the, the quote: "The the brain is not a computer; it's a jungle." Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. that was drilled into me over and over again. For and that is, 10 years. that is yeah. it's more like a rainforest yeah. than it is a computer. If you think about the rainforest, and in a sense, I mean, I always invoke this when I talk to students about um, sort of envisioning evolution, the biology behind evolution, and I say, look, um, rainforests, in a sense, they sort of have memory. Because over time, you know, certain elements are selected for and reinforced, and certain others more or less disappear. And if you're a human and you can sort of observe this over linear time, if you could literally, you know, do this thought experiment, you'd say, wow, well, it's changed, and I see the changes, but I still recognize it as this kind of a rainforest, and it has this kind of canopy, and it's still distinctively this rainforest. So there's a kind of an identity that's maintained, and it's sort of similar to the view, not just of a population or a complex eco-niche like a rainforest, but the species view that, that Darwin you know, perpetrated on us. It, it, it's, it's essentially the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think slightly richer, I think, than a metaphor. Let's go on to the next slide. And I want for you all to please jump in, as, as Jeff just did, to, okay. to bring up something as it comes up for you. Absolutely. Um, please. Okay, so here's the mammalian brain, or in this case it's the human brain, and it's, according to many people from 
you know, from a, a variety of early anatomists on for hundreds or even thousands of years, you know, some people have suspected it's the seat of something. In this case, we're talking about the big C as in consciousness, so for the seat of consciousness. Um, and it is, you know, a collection, you know, if you look at it, if you're a functional anatomist or you're a guy who specializes in, say, functional magnetic resonance imaging, you're doing imaging of behaving brains, you come to recognize certain, certain aspects of brain function which correlate specifically with certain kinds of experience. In that sense, we, we, we can study activity in relation to specific events in the world, and we can kind of start at least under, we're very at a very primitive state, by the way. As, as sophisticated as imaging is, it's still kind of stone knives and bear skins in the sense that we see aerial activation, areas of the brain glowing with activity when certain things happen in the world, and that's a correlate because it's always distinctively looking like that when, say, you see a cat. So that kind of maps to this dynamic representation with some differences. But, um, you know, so that's a, those are correlates, but we're sort of stuck because of the limits of how we can observe this, this perhaps most complex, you know, behaving object in, in, in the world, or perhaps even the universe. That was kind of an offshoot of the, the neural Darwinism theory was, and it came out of the Neuroscience Institute, um, but Olaf Sporns really pushed it, was, was because they're in these neuronal groups, and people thought of the brain as being specialist, but they really showed the interconnectivity between all these different regions. And, and right. Sporns launched from the Neuroscience Institute a whole field of theoretical neuroanatomy, which, right. and the connectome came out of, yeah. really came out of the Neuroscience Institute because they found hubs and other areas that were very intricately connected, and no two neurons were far apart. It's a small world network. Right. So, so these maps are very- What is the connectome? What is the connectome? Well, the connectome's many different things, but it's trying to get the wiring diagram of, of a brain. Right. So there's the human connectome, which is using uh, a form of magnetic imaging to look at the connections. Mm -hmm. And then there's, there's connectomes of uh, insects where they can actually do much finer grain and mm -hmm. connectomes of uh, the retina because they can pull it out and actually look at it. But it's right. trying to figure out the wiring diagram. Right, right. And, yeah. and seemingly paradoxically, you know, it's really a, it's sort of a, a sort of a, 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 a methodological paradox for us as neuroscientists. You can actually put literally a glass plate in the skull of a rat and observe the firing of neurons. You can use what's called calcium imaging. You can use a variety of techniques. You can actually see the individual patterns of traffic ways and the patterns of traffic across little groups of neurons, but little tiny groups of neurons. And what Olaf and other people who followed really contributed was, well, that's all well and good, but that's kind of the local neighborhood. And what Olaf said is what. How do all the long distance pathways work? Like, maybe like that? Maybe like that. That is definitely. Yes. That's great. Thank you. So, yeah. Yeah, and they really took um, information theory and, and network theory to the brain, which. And maybe like this? Like that. That's one of the pictures they come up <laughs> And can you explain that subtle distinction between. Because also another group out of Bell Labs and, and the, the whole group of Sebastian Song and Rafa mm -hmm. Usta, they were condensed matter physicists who were using Hopfield's ideas of networks, which are subtly different than. Olaf Sporn's networks. And can you explain that distinction? Well, they were taking some of the tools that they were that those people you were talking about, like Sung and others, were, were using, mm. but they were applying it to brain maps. So the data was coming out that you could add, add all these uh, brain areas and you could have like some idea of the connections, but no one really analyzed it. So they analyzed it like 
you would analyze the internet, the you know, right. or, or any other network, social mm -hmm. networks, and they found these fascinating parallels to large-scale networks. And, and yeah. much of it, in terms of what Sebastian Sung did, is structure. It's literally really dealing with structure. But the problem is you always have to reckon with function. And you know, so you can see the highways, the superhighways, the long-distance connections. And Sebastian Sung has contributed greatly to this through his methodology, which is astonishing. Um, but you can't really see. It's a static. It's like a snapshot. You're, you're capturing the brain at a certain instant, but you're really not seeing the constant play of traffic and the distinctive signaling patterns that do arise. And that's a, a certain. And that's where we're getting into global so, workspace theory. We're not yet going to get to that. Oh, so we're going to talk about that. Sure. In a bit. There's, there's only one thing uh, right now that is worth saying. Uh, I believe that the most recent estimate on the number of connections in the brain is now a quarter of a quadrillion connections. So that's so a biggie. To, so to borrow my dad's favorite trotted out statistic, it's not even a statistic, it's kind of a little, a little story, but a narrative about how many connections there are. Um, if you wanted to count the number of connections, this is something that dad loved to talk about. If you wanted to count the number of connections and arrive at a final figure, um, you counted one per if you counted one per second, you would finish counting 32 million years later. <laughs> but, but I know something that has more connections than that. Ah, okay. <laughs> what is that? A baby's brain. Aha, yeah. uh -huh. exactly. Oh, yes. 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 How many of you all have babies? Okay. Does anybody um, have a baby in the room? Thank God, not anymore. Oh, okay. Is anybody a baby? <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I mean, I think even like getting, you know, getting there in the first place, that neural Darwinism is, is the essence of it. Right? And the way I see it is about, you know, starting with, you know, one cell divides and, and uh, you know, grow, grows that way. But the whole uh, key for me is that you only need two things. Right? You need overproduction and you need selective or competitive elimination and time. Right. right. And that's the engine of evolution. Competitive elimination. Yeah, some non-random um, right. uh, selection. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not only how the brain becomes complex, it's how everything in nature mm -hmm becomes complex. I can't think of a single counterexample. Overproduce and selectively eliminate. Perfect. All you need. You don't need any other you know, assumptions and stuff like... We're not you know, talking about babies. No, but, yeah, that's why I think evolution is so embedded. It's, it's right. not even a bio, it's a statistical phenomenon. Right. But this is how the brain works in terms of, of each um, neuron. You pretty much have relatively the same amount from, from birth beyond. But they have these connections, and uh, somewhere between six and twenty thousand right. of sending out the, these these connections, mm -hmm. and then it's um, a brutal fight in terms of the connections that connect and lead to happiness and safety and good things. They they survive and they stick around. The others, they're not silenced; they're gone. They're physically eliminated, mm -hmm. and this is a constant battle for connections. So that yeah, the, so one neuron reaching out, you know, connecting to another. So, I mean, that's where the magic is, right? One neuron is not conscious, I would say, but a collection of them are. That's the magic. This is how it works. This is how the brain becomes the brain. So, in general, they're always um, sending out, uh, you know, more connections, and some make it and some don't, right. um, to the law of the jungle. But in general, childhood, you're getting more and more connections. And the peak is somewhere around 12, 13, and then the balance shifts, and you actually have less connections, um, in terms of as the brain becomes specialized, completely dependent upon what we do with it. 
that there may be more depth. Yeah, a lot of, like we, all these books around us, so a lot of people actually spend some of the, you know, brain time reading, right? Reading is only 5,000 years old, right? Most humans have never read a single word. It didn't exist for most humanity. But we pulled it off, and now we, you know, we spend a lot of our time doing stuff that the brain wasn't, quote, just like the immune system can attack invaders that you know, had, didn't exist at the time that DNA was there. But this, but. Is, a, this is really common across all, this is absolutely every, almost, I mean, every biological system I can think of is based on this very idea. Often people would talk about evolution as a great death machine. And the reason is that, you know, 99% yeah. plus of everything that's ever lived on this planet is dead. And 99% of synapses. And 99% of synapses. And the bottom line is, you know, not just the brain pulling back and just like observing an embryo, developing human being or developing animal in the womb, many, many, many more cells. That that actually is a is a is a pruning process a as well. There, it's a jungle out there. Yeah. And there's selectional events that are occurring there that shape an embryo. You start with overproduction, as you said. And there are critical processes, including cell death, yeah. cell migration, yeah. and cells becoming particular types. Cell migration, would you explain that very simply? For yeah, us? yeah, the idea that cells actually can move. You know, if you're talking about a developing brain, when you, when you look at a brain just before, I don't remember how many days in a, in a mouse, it's 18, 21 days is the gestation, I guess. I don't know, is it 14 days when the cortex Exactly, works? yeah. Yeah, around 14, 10, 14 days. If you look, if you're able to look, you would see these neurons, these sort of primordial neurons. These yeah, you can literally see them. You yeah. can literally see yeah. them. Yeah. These precursor yeah. neurons, and they're radiating upward and outward into what later become the cortical mantle. But they're moving to do that. So they have to move. They have to die. Some of them die along the way. Some of them die once they're connected, mm -hmm. and they get physically selected for a few. And I, I just wanted to put that up real briefly, but the heavy and synapse idea is really important. We won't dwell on it today, but some of you guys may have already glanced at that slide. Let's, let's move it to the next slide. And, well, so the Darwinian view, we can keep on going. Let's get past Chuck. Sorry, Chuck. I thought I saw him in the other room earlier. Right. So this is kind of a synopsis of this notion, at least in terms of brain development, of what's going on, brain development and brain adaptation through life. So there are two aspects of selection that are, um, that are kind of the, com the main components of neural Darwinism. The first aspect is the developmental selection part. And that's what's happening during the development of an embryo and even very, very early post, you know, postnatal, very early postnatal. Yeah. But what's happening is physically certain cells and certain connections are being selected for and others aren't. And the ones that aren't are literally dying or the, they're being pruned, they're somehow disappearing. So there's actually a physical selection going on that picks out the cells that make it and the other ones fall by the wayside through some certain sort of environmental circumstance. The baby's born, eventually the baby starts to experience the world, the baby's eyes open up. The baby, uh, you know, experiences the world and experience starts doing the selection. Only this time, it's not really so much the selection. So it's not mere, it's not really the case of the experience killer. Cells aren't dying as a result of the experience per se, even though do cells do die throughout your life. Some brain cells do die. Mostly what's happening is the patterns of the traffic are changing. So certain traffic patterns are selected over others. So certain synapses are strengthened. The things that connect the cells get strengthened. The syn synapses, synapses, the, the thing that connects the, the cells. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. And the likelihood, the likelihood that a signal will pass across that synapse from one neuron to the next 
increases with, ex with continued experience of a particular thing in the world. The more you see it and experience it, the baby, for the first time in its life, smelling the hot chocolate melting off of a chocolate chip cookie coming out of the oven, and at the same time, the baby hears mom's voice say, cookie, cookie, and then he looks over, and she's waving this weird brown object, and there's this amazing pungent smell coming out of that object, but she comes over, and she's still saying, cookie, cookie, and the baby gets her, his, his, her first taste, and all of these things are coming together. And initially, when they come together, there's no good reason that those sensory, you know, the, that sensory input, which is coming from different channels, the vision, the hearing, the smell, the touch, the taste, there's no good reason that that should be causally related if the baby's never experienced it before. But those things happen to be converging on the brain at the same time, and neuron, certain neurons are going to start firing, and they will fire together, and then the synapses strengthen, and they wire together. And in that way, certain traffic patterns and traffic ways are selected for over others. So that's the other part of selection in neural Darwinism. And the final bit, which really relates to consciousness, is the last bit. No, 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 don't change it. It's the last part of the slide. Is re is, you're just keeping me on my toes. Is, is re-entry. So this is a sort of a notion that fits in with what I just talked about. The baby seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting the cookie for the first time. And eventually tasting it and hearing his mom's voice say cookie many times. And over time, there's a kind of a higher order mapping that's going on because not only are the individual areas that say represent taste or represent vision, represent hearing, auditory cookie, not only are they, they firing simultaneously, but higher order maps start being made by the fact that the connections between these different areas get, connect, get, get strengthened. And therefore, the likelihood that the next time the baby encounters a cookie, the likelihood that these things are going to fire together increases. And they, wi they literally wire together in that sense. You can see it under a microscope. You can actually you can see, see, the, see it under It's not a theory. You can see that. You and you can wow. see the synapses tightening. You can literally see them coming closer together. And you can see the cadherins binding them more closely. All this yeah. stuff is actually physically happening. That's reentry. So in a way, now, not only do you have basic maps of certain senses, you have maps that are almost temporal maps. They're based on the timing. These things are coming in together. And as soon as one of these things drops off, let's say the baby no longer hears mom saying cookie, but the baby sees a cookie. But in his mind, he may hear cookie. Because that group of neurons now is going to fire along with the others because the, the, the chances, the, the, the connections have been, you know, the strength of connections has increased, the likelihood that that's going to fire with the other components, even though that part of the brain, the, 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 the auditory part, isn't being directly jazzed by mom saying cookie. That's, that's a kind of an interesting idea, and it relates to memory, but it also relates fundamentally to the contents of consciousness and how we construct yeah, exactly. the world. Uh, so my question to you is, when you say the word experience, are you referring to conscious experience? Doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. Doesn't no. It doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be. no. And so tell me, uh, uh, what is the difference? Do you think, based on your theoretical work, uh, between those two conditions? Because there are, after all, there's a lot the of information processing mm -hmm. going on uh, that is not conscious, and there's yeah. a ton of information processing going on that is 
conscious? And what's the difference? Um, well, I think of it from textbook memory kind of point of view. So if it's declarative memory, then you can bring it to conscious memory and explain how you got that memory. Well, what about sensory memory? Well, there's a lot of priming and things that you're not conscious of, but there's obviously neurons firing together and wiring together mm -hmm. because skills are getting better, even though you can't explain why. So the person was not conscious of it. But there's so, there's a, so your yeah. claim is kind of the skeptical claim yes. uh, <laughs> about the involvement of consciousness in, in memory and all that kind of stuff. And my claim is the opposite and the way to deal with you know, intellectual disagreement is to talk about them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not to duke it out. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll duke it out. Let's go at it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I'm just dropping this theme or meme or whatever it is. A meme. Uh, a meme? Okay. A theme and meme. Uh, okay. And we'll come back to it and uh, you and I will fist the cuffs, right? There's, a, there's an extension of Hebbians, you know, fire together, wire together. And that's fire together, wire together, grow together. Same yeah. thing. And, and we can, uh, they grow together. And so the, you those, say the three things that. Uh, yeah, fire together, wire together, grow, grow together, together, which we can actually measure and map now. Mm -hmm. And the degree to which they grow together predicts psychopathology, predicts verbal IQ. Now that we can make things in autism and stuff. So it's sort of a new way of looking at the brain imaging is um, you know, looking at how groups of things grow together. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a more recent sort of notion. Um, but, and the fact that it relates to performance, um, for better and worse performance and illnesses, I think, is, is intriguing. Yeah. But yeah. we can separate out with imaging sort of uh, conscious memories from unconscious and emotionally laden memories from, from not. They're distinct sim um, systems. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and yeah. the latter rely more on the, de the late, later development of the prefrontal cortex. So you get, you know, get better. Well, that's it. Some oh, smells you can remember well, from when you're two. And, uh, well, if you had like primary know. visual cortex and, and learning orientated lines, right? Line orientation. That's columns. not primary. That's. Well, D2 like simple D2 cells D2 in D1, something. right? Do you think uh, you need conscious, perce conscious perceptual, perceptual awareness to actually. Well, the current best story, mm -hmm. but. I don't think it's going to remain the current best story. Uh, the current best story is that visual information following Dahan and Shanzhou, uh, that visual information becomes conscious somewhere around IT or MTL. Uh, and then the big debate is whether that's the story or whether it has to go to prefrontal cortex. And my tentative guess is that it's both. Uh, because there's the semantics mm -hmm. of the visual world, of course, and semantics usually involves asso association cortex rather than the direct sensory input system. How do we bridge the gap, or we think of as the gap, between the gray matter that Bernie is describing and actually sharing with you so, so beautifully, and the material, and conscious thought, the immaterial? And so, how, so, do we, how does one seemingly lead to the other? And I I'm, wondered if I could, um, yes. I'm going to raise an objection. Yes, you're going to raise an objection. <laughs> to use those words, material and immaterial, mm -hmm. uh, is already caging the problem. Ah, okay, great. Okay? Uh, and in science, uh, whenever we cage problems, we run into big, big. 
trouble. Okay. And eventually find out and have to back off. So, so would thanks. we then reorient uh, the question to being uh, conscious and unconscious? That's certainly fine, uh, because that's so close to the data, right? Okay. You can tell. Excellent. Thank you. So we'd be bridging the gap. So would it be possible for you, for you to have sure. a I mean, yeah, So here, let's all do an exercise uh, where we have to think and in, in, in action instead of talking about it, right? So, so and what's inspiring this is um, when, when I talked to Dr. Edelman about repertoire, to go way back to what Jay was saying about repertoire and selective pressure, when, when I brought that up to him, one thing he really stressed, which was kind of said but kind of dropped, is the non-random relationship between repertoire and the selective pressure, right? So they're already connected before the process starts happening, or else the, the, process, ain't, the process ain't gonna happen, right? So they're, and, and so let's try it in action, though. So I'll give you a tough action to accomplish. I'll stand up so you can see it. So just take your hands and do this. Go forward, right? So the hypnotist in the room will know this is also a pre-induction, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> and then also now go in back in re reverse, okay? And this is a little mind exercise for Martin Gardner, believe it or not. Because now what you do is just go in both directions at the same time. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. So now we get a bunch of creative movements. That's very <laughs> But you can already see, now we're in this different world. When we're in action, and also we're in a social context, so I plan to do it on purpose to, say, to add the social pressure, right? So we're in a different world when we're not talking and we're acting, right? And you can feel yourself trying to get to that. I can tell you how to select for that relatively quickly over the next two days. What you do is you start here, think top, and then make one hand go forward and one hand back in two semicircles, and meet at the bottom and think bottom, and now think top, and now think bottom, and then top, and then you build the action. So this idea that also you'll hear cognitive psychologists say that you can't you know, multitask, that's not the way we build complex actions. We all multitask and we all know it. You know? And so, okay, so, you know, top, and do you feel that? So if you practice that, you'll be able to get your friends with it too. But also, it shows you how differently we are when we act, how it becomes active and real. We're in a very different place than when we talk about it. And selected actions is, is actually really way, it's, I was thinking that you can also think about yourself, you know, choice versus selection, to go back to those big categories. Think about at the beginning of the year when you make a New Year's resolution, you know? That's, you know you're in a choice model, right? And then by the end of the year, you know what you've really done, you know, and all the shame comes in. That's the actuality. And some of the choices you've made are conscious, some are unconscious, but it's all part of your conscious reality. So because the problem is you can really slip when you start saying conscious, it can slip into intentionality, right? And, and you know, you, you can do something unintentionally and it's still conscious. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anybody want to jump in there with Mark? <laughs> the, the really <laughs> the behavior or? well um well, i am on the spot uh, <laughs> so one of the ideas and that, that's how i got involved with the neuroscience institute was uh and it led to robotics robotics but it was the brain is embodied the body's embedded in the environment and it really speaks to like there's there's no brain without a, having behavior and action like you were just showing lots of action but that's what that's what it's all about for organisms and us is action and our actions are in the world and our actions are causing a reaction or some change in the world and then we're working with that and actually we, we 
we leverage that to our advantage. So I think that's a big part of it. When you're talking material, immaterial, I wasn't sure how I was going to answer that. But that, that was a big part of the way Edelman wanted to show his theory, to show that you have to see behavior somehow in, in, in the, uh, in not just a brain that's isolated in a vacuum, or a brain, as he used to call it, a brain in a vat. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Sort of a final thing that we have to consider is, let's say we understand we come to understand consciousness. We come to understand a lot, or as much as we can possibly. We understand the mechanism. The nature of consciousness. Well, yeah, we understand the play of the neuron, right. and we somehow can relate this to the conscious process in a rich way. What are the implications? And let's bring it back to Jeff in the sense that, you know, one of the things that you, you'll know more about this, of course, than I do, one of the things that I suspect is missing, or at least not, is sort of sparse in the literature, is the notion of projecting a machine model that is, a, in effect, goes through a sort of a child, an extended mm -hmm. childhood, not just simply these moments where you're, yeah. you're, mm -hmm. you know, exposing the machine to an environment and helping it to learn, but over a long period of time, extend the framework, the temporal framework, and literally talk about the the, the machine's maybe phenotype, the form of the machine, perhaps changing over time, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and, and I don't know what is there, but it's Yeah, well, there's like a few things. You know who started this was Alan Turing, was, mm. was the one uh, Turing machine and also the imitation game. Um, he was the one that actually said that why, if I want to make something intelligent, why not make like a baby and then teach it? So, it, so mm -hmm. you could start right. simple. So I was amazed, I reread that, but that was in like the 50s he wrote yeah, that. Incredible. And there was a, a robotics field that I'm sort of on the fringe of called uh, developmental robotics. They actually look at this. And constructionism? Right? Yeah, they, they look at they, they actually try and teach the, the system to get better over time. And, um, but one thing that you touched on that they can't do, which is really hard, which all organisms seem to do, is they go from very small to very large. large. Their body changes a lot, and then somehow they fluidly adapt to that. That's a really hard engineering problem hmm. at this point. But, but there is an active field to actually think, well, if we want to make something smart, start out dumb, but then teach you what it needs to know through imitation, through teaching, coaching. So there's a lot of work on that. Yeah. Would I do help what you do? Could you sort of understand the stages that a baby goes through? First this, then that. So like, you know, different ages, but first you, you know, um, crawl, then you walk, then you run. The sequence is often the same. Would that help guide your research and development to sort of say, okay, now we have embodiment. Okay, what's the next step beyond? You know, would that sort of guide your um, your research direction, or not not so much? Um, maybe not mine particular, but my field. Yeah, that mm. would that would definitely guide it. Um, and one one of the things David was talking about was called lifelong learning. So right now, the the state of the art, they can only learn so much. And then you have to freeze it, otherwise it's going to overlearn. There's all these terms for it, but it falls apart, basically. And so somehow babies learn in stages and build on what they've learned before without forgetting what they learned previously. Right. That's something, and we do it in adults, that's something that no artificial system can do right now. That's actually on a project that's trying to figure out. But your robots remembered the previous, right? Yeah, but my robots remembered it over trials that lasted a few days. Okay. Yeah. We're talking, we, we learn things over decades. Right. Yeah. So, so that seems to bridge right into a question that Burton has been asking and, and talking about, which is addressed beautifully in, in the book, is cortex the organ of mind? We're talking about, 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 about these uh, op op opportunities and implications. And I know Mark actually wanted to jump in 
and uh, uh, you're welcome to. It was, it's related to slightly different. No, no problem, and then we're going to. Okay, because like. And we're getting close to the end of the talk, and we're going <laughs> to have some more uh, wines and dessert and coffee afterwards in the, in the gallery. Uh, thank you for sticking it out with us. You're, you're wonderful. And I guess it's a question for Jeff, which is, you know, now these ideas of this idea of iteration and, and, and artificial intelligence is quite popular. And I wonder, you know, because it seems like since we are in La Jolla and um, the, the home of the Neurosciences Institute, could you put that in his, like, so DARPA would say that the first wave of AI was driven by um, game theory, the second wave was driven by um, probability theory, and the third wave by iteration. And we're all familiar now by reading about AlphaGo and the deep mind idea. But then I've, over the last uh, two years, I've been having great meetings with George Rieke, who did a lot of work with the Neuroscience Institute. And we've been talking about like an early paper in 1988 uh, called Real Minds and Artificial Intelligence, where this iterative model that seems contemporary now was well-defined. Um, so can you put this idea in terms of the Neuroscience Institute in context? Because iteration now is something that we all hear about all the time. So what do you mean exactly by iteration then I can? Well, I guess this idea of like, like the, the way, if I understand correctly, because I'm not a computer scientist and not even a scientist and not even a, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, th this idea, I can do that, right? Which I can't, yeah. All right, so, so then, no, but it's this idea of like what made that big leap from Deep Blue playing Gary Kasparov to AlphaGo playing, you know, Go. Lisa, you know, like, so, so what happened there? And, and then also, was that, you know, is it, am I just delusional or was the, were those delusional. ideas, <laughs> okay, or were those ideas yeah. thought about by people? Okay, well that's yeah, for those, sure. Those, oh, were those ideas insane. thought about by those, those iterative ideas thought about in the Darwin Robot Project at NSI? Um, actually, no, because what's going on now was thought about around the same time by, by people who are doing artificial neural networks and there are some pioneers in it. Um, but they didn't have enough data and they didn't have good enough computers. So what's happening now is we have huge data sets and we have large enough computers to chunk through this and we can you know, decide uh, this is a cat and this is a dog and those kind of things and also play a really mean game of chess or Go uh, or the other benchmark is Atari games of all things. Um, but uh, what Edelman was doing and maybe Steve Grossberg and a few other people, they were still looking at how the brain does it, which is very different. And uh, they both stuck with it through some dark years where there was really no funding for it and uh, made a huge amount of progress. And now I think it's, there's a bunch of buzz by, in the artificial intelligence community with what's going on now, which is really an old idea, but they're hitting a wall and they're starting to realize how brittle it is. And it's coming back to they're asking neuroscientists to get involved. Because actually, I'm on a DARPA project where the, mm. the manager said, we really need to uh, look at biology. And so I, I would swore I'd never do deep neural networks, but I, I did because they actually wanted to look at how maybe some of the biological solutions to that. Mm. So I think this is coming back in vogue. And, and it was good that people like Gerald Edelman, Steve Grossberg, and I'm probably forgetting a few others stuck with it through those years where it was really hard to get funding and hard to, you know, you're speaking to the wind for a long time. I started off as an experimental psychologist. And, and the good thing about that was that we beat the hell out of evidence over and over and over again. So I'm 
very conscientious about evidence, and when people talk in these airy-fairy ways, I will not mention names, uh, uh, there's always this, this thirst, uh, this thirst uh, to you know, what's actually happening in the real world, and how do we find out about it, and how do we test things in the real world. And that became possible with regard to consciousness, I think, at least in modern science. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, when Helmholtz's hypothesis from the 1840s, I don't mean to wander from the point here, Helmholtz was a very great scientist, he was a great physicist, great physiologist, a great student of both hearing and vision. Uh, and at one point he proposed that the visual system must be making unconscious inferences about things that we see, which is obvious when you look at eye movements, for example. When you're reading, when you think you're reading a page, the fact is that you're not. You're mostly filling in. And whenever you fixate on a word or on a phrase, whatever, you're momentarily conscious of that, and then your eyeball, eyeball rotates like a billiard ball, uh, and it's ballistic, uh, and then it jumps to another point, and you can take another fixation at that point. You take fixation, 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 little ones, they're all little ones, little patches, and your brain uh, brings it together and makes it conscious. Uh, and Helmholtz, was practically run out of town uh, for proposing that because this violated all the educated Western intuitions that we have that what makes the difference between humans and other animals is rationality, logic, reason, discourse, uh, all those wonderful things which are indeed wonderful things uh, and mere animals were, were different. So, Aristotle had a hierarchy. Uh, uh, if you were a philosopher, of course, you were on top of the hierarchy. And, and that still persists today in philosophy, so that every philosopher I know, at least, seems to develop arguments that show that he is conscious, but not too many other people are. Uh, and this is sort of understandable, but it's not true. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, so there was this hierarchical notion which dominated uh, Western thought for such a long time uh, until we ran into these awful things called computers. Uh, and by the 1970s, so, so Helmholtz's idea was roundly rejected and denounced. Uh, and, and so by the 1970s, what we had was a so-called machine metaphor for this wealth of unconscious processes that our brains are doing every single second, every single fraction of a second. So if we walk away from the cortex for a moment, there are two balls hanging underneath of the back of the cortex called the cerebellum, or the cerebell cerebellums, I suppose these days. Uh, and, and they're very, very important. They have either as many neurons or more neurons. Four times as many. Yeah, four times. Really? Yeah. Four times as many neurons. Smaller, but more of them, yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's the but they're little neurons, and they're wired very differently from the cortex. And the 
repeated stories from medicine, uh, and I believe uh, animal operations as well, is that you can get rid of the cerebellum, or at least much of the cerebellum, and maintain a stream of consciousness. And you think that's correct? Is that yeah, right? it's like a, a computer-wise, it's like a, a co-processor. It's not essential for anything, but it's helpful for a lot of things. So there are, there's a great deal of unconscious processing going on uh, in the brain and in the spinal cord and the, the, the peripheral neurons that pervade our bodies. Uh, that is not directly conscious, but I should say that a lot of it kicks off regions of cortex which emerge in the conscious stream uh, that, we're, that you are experiencing right now. This is a beautiful illustration that Natalie, an, an artist, uh, worked on. Uh, and it's basically, you can think of it as foveation. I'm pinpointing my fovea at a rather about this much. Uh, if, if I extend my arm like this and put up two fingers, that's about the size of a foveal fixation. And we weave them together, or rather our brains weave them together for us, and what becomes conscious, of course, is not the little foveal fixation, but rather this enormous scene, which is actually much larger than the real visual field, if you measure it carefully. So we fill in all kinds of really important stuff. And so we have a three-dimensional environment. We have lots of people sitting here. We're trying to communicate with each other and all that stuff. And it comes from little fragments of input. Uh, and the brain is just very smart uh, to make sense of all that. And this, this goes to Mark's point uh, that that verbiage is not necessarily the, uh, either the highest or the only way to think about these things because sensory motor interaction, and it always is sensory and motor, uh, even speech, for example. So this is psycho. Uh, and the sensory part of the brain, the posterior half of the brain, uh, is the most vivid source of, uh, of conscious vision and olfaction and taste and hearing and so on. If we think about all those lines that are going into cortex as being bidirectional, um, and bidirectional irritates all the engineers I know, uh, because engineers know perfectly well that when you put a microphone next to a loudspeaker, that the circuit's going to bl blow up for obvious reasons, right? It goes into this howling siren sound. And basically, uh, one of the tricks of electrical engineering is to avoid feedback loops like that. Now, the weird thing about the cortex is that it's simply filled with feedback loops like that, and yet, it survives. Now, it doesn't always survive, by the way, because when you have an epileptic fit, what you're getting is this exactly uh, uh, out-of-control feedback loop. Uh, so it, it doesn't always do that, but uh, children sometimes have temporary epilepsy that they grow out of. And in that process, there's some kind of balancing happening uh, against uh, catastrophic events. Uh, so this is a system that is ready to crash at any moment, and the reason why it makes sense that it's, it is ready to collapse at any moment is because it must respond 
to totally unexpected inputs at various times. And it has to respond within about 100 milliseconds if you're an average mouse. Uh, so, so cat starts chasing mouse, uh, mouse starts zigzagging, and the decision time for that process is about 100 milliseconds, maybe 200, uh, whatever, very fast. Uh, and your neurons uh, are relatively slow. They're much slower than, uh, than, the, uh, than the switches in a computer. Uh, so, so there's this weird organ called the cortex. Uh, and we know, in fact, I believe, in, in my mind at least, it was a neurosurgeon at the Montreal Neurological Institute uh, who discovered around 1934, it was published in 1934, that cortex is the organ of mind. And by mind, Penfield certainly included consciousness, although mind also has some unconscious aspects. But that, he, he found that essentially by studying what turned out to be 1,200 seriously epileptic patients who were not curable by less invasive procedures. And essentially had conversations with the patients while the, while the cortex was being stimulated. So, so the mind, the conscious mind, but also the unconscious part that we call mind, Shorter memory is an example. The, the, the conscious mind is an aspect of this vast range of phenomena in the world that can be understood in various implementations, if you will, of biological principles. I'll just tell you what you're seeing. Huge number of neurons, and he placed it on a so 80,000 or 100,000? Yeah, 100,000. Yeah. And I think he used his own head. He imaged his own head to get the connectivity and where the areas were and placed them in three dimensions uh, on this and then ran it, which took a ton of time to run. And this animation represents probably like a month of simulation time. What came out were these beautiful waves that look very much like what a wave would look like if you were actually uh, imaging a brain like that, except there's details there that are, that are really underlying the structure, connectivity, and the dynamics of, of single neurons. I haven't seen this particular one, but variations on that. People are, are very interested in the frequency of the waves in terms of uh, as a way for kind of the brain to um, test its predicted uh, model against sensor input and, and that this, this you know, frequency um, you know, is sort of this, unique to consciousness. And this is related to the 20 years that you studied identical twins in the National yeah, Institute for Mental yeah, Health it, and their development over time. It hasn't been looked at you know, formally, as I know, but that is a good example as well of, of you know, twins are themselves. They're, they have they still have the same sub, of subjectivity, even though the same DNA and the you know, very similar environments. Um, and whether sort of twins feel less, you know, of that subjective sense of, you know, of I, you know, in terms of like, um, uh, do they feel sort of a little bit more connected to their twin on these levels? But, but I think that this is uh, also uh, a window into the future in terms of, you know, being able to um, capture and quantify brain activity at these levels makes it a very exciting time for this kind of research. I think the, the technologies, the um, 
AI, if that's, I know that term is, uh, mm-hmm. I love everybody, but you know, I think a lot of things are converging right now, being able to, to do the deep math, being able to do the modeling, to do the imaging, that it really feels like we're poised to, you know, to really take a leap forward instead of a baby step forward. I love that. And, and, and Bernie, is this a, um, perhaps a, a model to express um, in a, a global workspace theory, a global workspace dynamics? Right. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a long story, so maybe we're not at that possibility. Yeah, yeah. All you need to do is read the 800 pages. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This will get you to about 2013, yeah, uh, and then you got to come back. <laughs> so an important aspect of this is the heuristic value. When I say heuristic value, what I mean is the idea that this model is testing the plausibility. This kind of model tests the plausibility of biological principles or the biological meanderings of actual neurons. So when Eugene was doing this, he wasn't spinning this out of whole cloth. He was inspired by what we know, knew about the activity and function of neurons. And he used that as the basis for essentially what you're seeing here. And what's really encouraging about this, as Jeff pointed out, is you see these propagating waveforms that look very much like what, you, what we're beginning to see with mm-hmm. ever-improving imaging techniques. It's in real brains. That's encouraging because that suggests that we may actually be on the right track and maybe biologically based models can kind of be the harbinger of designing or implementing brains in artificial devices that may at some point instantiate conscious processing. And it's beautiful and technologically marvelous as it is. So the usual standards is 84,600 sort of pixels or voxels that are measured. So each of the smallest things you can see is still five million neurons. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. so as good as this is, like we've got a way. We're still a plane flying over the city. Yeah. You know, sort of looking. We're not at the dining room table. That's right. Again, to borrow Mr. Spock's phrase from my favorite Star Trek episode, it's, it's stone knives and bearskins. We're at the stone knives and bearskins stage, but someday we won't be. <laughs>